Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 84 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, also known as Padim, Console of Innovation. Why, man? Because it's innovation time. We have a fresh, exciting, cool, standard format. I'm, I'm into this. I like what's happening in the early weeks. You know, we were kind of getting mired down in the goblin chain whirler muck a few weeks ago, and we weren't super thrilled with the end of the last standard format, but things look good right now. There's a lot of interesting innovations going on, including Padim himself showing up in a top eight this week. So lots of cool stuff to talk about. I'm, I'm excited to get into standard and lay out where I see the format going right now, because I think there's a, a pretty clear path to take going forward. Okay. Well, before we get too much into it, I do want to just mention one quick thing, a little trend that's been popping up on Magic Online, specifically in Modern, and this is Militia Bugler in Humans. I've seen this a bit in some lists. What's your opinion on Militia Bugler? Is this the real deal or is, is this a mistake that people are making? Well, the the first instances of this happening were like two copies main deck. And now you see some with like two main deck, two sideboard. And I've seen some with four main deck. And I think that's probably just the way to go. Like, I honestly think that human struggles a little bit if it happens to flood out. And the fact that you get to play four buglers and it's just, really good with Aether Vial, really good with Thalia's Lieutenant. Like, it's possible that you can actually just play an extra land in your deck now, too. Well, that's a big change. Uh, you know, Humans has been pretty static for quite some time now with one or two flex slots. So so what are the decks who are adapting Militia Bugler wholesale? What are they giving up? What, what's the odd man out in the Humans mix? I mean, it always is the flex slots, right? It's like the Restoration Angel, Dark Confidant, Kessig Malcontents, Fourth Phantasmal Image. So those are just gone at this point. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you, you you suddenly don't really need to play those, but it's like the bugler gives you a bunch of staying power and it helps you find your bullets post board, which I think is huge. Yeah, you can't underestimate uh, how big of an impact getting access to your sideboard cards more reliably will have on that deck because there are really strong sideboard options for the humans tribe. A lot of things they can do to improve matchups in post board configurations. And now when you're hitting them that much more often, I, I can buy this. I can buy Militia Bugler being a main deck inclusion. Also, it's starting to get a little bit more of that kind of death and taxi legacy type feel where you can grind a lot harder because you have this body which comes stapled to another body and all of the synergies make this body more relevant. Whereas, oh, a 2-3 isn't that good. But when it's pumping your lieutenants and when it's making your champion of the parish bigger and it's getting pumped itself by lieutenant, that all changes. And it all kind of starts the snowball from, from square one. I'm excited to put Militia Bugle in my Humans deck. Humans isn't an archetype I've totally adopted. I've played it here and there, but I've chosen to go other routes. But maybe this is the push I need to finally scratch that Humans itch. Yeah, I mean, it's also just really, really good with Phantasmal Image, right? We're like, right. if you play like seven or eight copies of those two cards, like it is possible that you just get to chain, chain a bunch through of... Chain deck, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And cool. as a person who has been playing Mardu Pyromancer and mostly like been bullying around like these humans decks, this card is just terrifying to me because part of the reason why you were able to beat them was because you just like grind them into dust. And mm-hmm. now it's much more difficult to actually accomplish that. So would you say this is this is a fundamental change to the kind of modern New World Order we've been seeing over the last couple of months where humans is starting to get pushed back down? Is this the shot in the arm humans needed to step back up into the limelight and therefore push down the combo decks and the KCIs and all that other stuff that was starting to take hold in the format? Well, it, it doesn't help in those sorts of matchups, right? Like maybe, I mean, like KCI is, is kind of a slower combo deck, so I could see Bugler finding more meddling mages or whatever and like that actually helping you. But for the most part, it's just like decks like Jeskai, Blue-White Control, Mardu, like they are going to struggle a little bit more against the Bugler decks. And it, it probably just like swings the pendulum back a little bit into humans' favor. Right. I, I think part of what was keeping humans down, though, wasn't necessarily that they were struggling in those combo matchups all of a sudden. It was just that there were other 
predators who were looking to take advantage of the combo matchups and you know also had this ancillarily good matchup against humans at the same time. So things like Jeskai and Mardu were able to pick on the little guys and humans, and, and that might stop now and allow them to take their share back in the metagame and target the combo decks efficiently once again. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure when the next time I get to play Modern is outside of the occasional like Mox Boarding House Weekly or whatever, but I'm actually pretty excited to try out humans, and that, that's like one of my top contenders, I think, for a tournament coming up. Cool. You'll have to bring back a report to us and, and let us know how it goes. I'm sure we'll discuss more prior to the next big modern tournament that you're playing. We'll, we'll be back on modern before you know it. Uh, my focus still lies on Stitcher's Supplier. Some really cool Stitcher's Supplier decks starting to show up uh, yes. in the 5.0s across the internet. Uh, all kinds of very powerful looking synergies. And uh, I think they're here to stay. These decks are legit, powerful, and a new angle for the format to have to prepare for. Yeah, so I'm I'm currently in Japan. I made a trip to Haruya yesterday, and one of the things that I did pick up was four Japanese copies of Vengevine. Excellent idea. I, I totally believe Vengevine is is getting ready to make its presence felt all across modern. It's been a while. We've seen a little Vengevine here or there, but Stitcher Supplier is the card that really pushes Vengevine to the next level. Yeah, I mean, obviously I bought the Stitcher Suppliers too, so. Yeah, good choice. Did you get foil ones? You're not a foil guy, right? You just like the Japanese regulars. Yeah, yeah. I just got Japanese ones. I was actually looking for Japanese foil Nicol Bolas the Ravagers. That would be a pretty card to have in your uh, in your arsenal. Those are not only very, very expensive, but very difficult to find. <laughs> they were sold out. So. so you weren't the only one with this idea to track down Bolas. Maybe at the GP you'll have some success. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they were like $180 or something. Yikes. That's a lot. Which is, it's a bit much. A bit much. I, I do think that there's a possibility that Bolus reaches back to eternal formats. And I saw it somewhere. I, I think I saw it in a legacy sideboard. I of, saw it uh, I saw it in a legacy main deck, I think. It was like one one nickel bolus and one Kess. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I, I feel like we're probably talking about the same deck. Maybe it was something from the classic in Worcester. I'm browsing real fast right now. No, I, I think it was a Legacy Daily. I think it might have been Osman Osgunny or like Legacy Challenge or something. Okay, I, I'm talking about the classic in Worcester, the Legacy Classic. There was a Grixis Death Shadow deck in the top eight, so that's already noteworthy. But they had a sideboard, Nicol Bolas, as well as a cast in the sideboard. Okay. Oh, yeah, maybe that was it. I don't know. But yeah, he's he's showing up. Uh, I've seen like some Grixis tap out lists in modern with Nicol Bolas. And I don't know, like for four mana, you can do a lot in modern. The whole like if the game goes on and I get to seven mana, I'm going to win the game aspect of Bolas is not as pronounced in modern as it is in standard, certainly. Right. Especially, so, especially like doubly so in Legacy too. So maybe we should pump the brakes on Bolas. Also keep in mind, Bolas in Legacy, vulnerable to both Pyroblast and Hydroblast. Awkward. Very awkward. So you don't and, really want to dump your seven mana into that. Yeah. And Caracas to some degree. And I don't know, man, just four mana, four, four flyer is, is not great in these formats, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like a stretch to me right now, but people are finding success with it. So we'll have to see if it becomes, you know, just a flash in the pan, the new thing to try out, or if Bolas actually gets a foothold in the format. Yeah, I mean, there there would be a time, I think, where, when you'd be like, oh, it doesn't die to Abrupt Decay or whatever, but Abrupt Decay is not very prevalent, and that is just not a realistic issue, so... Right, doesn't feel like the metagame that we're playing in currently. Although the metagame obviously still in a state of flux given two very recent bannings, uh, you know, just starting to piece together exactly what Legacy looks like going forward. Yeah, I, I mean, it looks like Legacy from a decade ago, basically. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> a big regression to old school Legacy. And I, I think a lot of those archetypes that have been put away for a while are going to start finding success again. Things like Stoneblade, these these decks which were just horrible for the longest times, just complete mistakes to play. They at least merit consideration at this point. If you're able to interact with early combo and present a quick clock, a lot of things are going to start to look viable. Truth. All right. Standard? Standard. I'm ready to talk standard. All right. Well, what what have you been up to? Have you been playing like standard a decent amount or what's the deal? A decent amount, a decent amount. I did some streaming this week. I'm at the stage right now where I have some theories about the format. And if you press me and I had an event this weekend, I could make a conclusion. But since I don't have any events coming up anytime soon, I'm kind of just taking an approach 
to standard that I'm going to play everything. And I've just been grabbing lists that look interesting, playing some fairly stock lists to just get a real good handle on the format, see what all these decks are capable of. So when I do bring my own list to the table, it, it's going to be well-tuned, well-thought-out. So I, I've done some leagues with uh, basically the Grixis decks, the blue-white splash-red Grixis deck, or excuse me, the blue-black splash-red Grixis deck. I think that deck is excellent, by the way. Yes. My early pick for like level one of the format would be that deck. I'm just now in a league with the Paradoxical Outcome deck. We can talk ew. through all this stuff. No, no, don't, don't, ooh, we'll, we'll get to it. But why don't you start with where you're at in the format and, and we'll talk through all these uh, these new players in the metagame. Whose outcome deck did you copy? Was it Ray's? It is Ray's, yep. Okay. Do you know Matsugan? No, I do not. Uh, I think he, he was like 30th-ish place in that same PTQ. Okay. Uh, I had dinner with him last night. So, okay. And what, what did he have something to say about the deck that that brings you to this point? Or I I asked him if the deck was if it was great, and he said that Psy is very very good, and that was it. Yeah, I I agree with that. I'm I'm not going to comment on the difference between the two lists right, right now because I'm I'm looking at this list for the first time. I'm looking at Matsugan's list right now. He was 29th place in the Moto PTQ. If you'd like to take a look at home, he's got to anticipate in his list, which is a little bit different from Ray's list. But I think Psy is kind of a game changer for this deck. It gets to play this weird game now where it can comfortably sit back in some instances and it's able to present pressure. It's able to block effectively. It's able to establish some board presence, kind of in the way that if you think of the old Felidar Guardian, Sahili Rai combo decks where you'd play like a Rogue Refiner. And the Rogue Refiner in and of itself looks a little mopey. It's just a 3-2. What's it really doing? But the fact that if unanswered, it's eventually going to run away with the game gives your opponent a new facet to deal with in your game plan. And Sai is doing some of that same stuff while also empowering the combo turns and and letting your inspired statuaries do more. So I, I was impressed with the resiliency of this deck, with what it was able to overcome, with what it brought to the table. It's not the same deck as it was prior to this last set of printings. And I'm not saying it's tier one, but I think doing it out of out of your field of decks that you'd consider is doing yourself a disservice. I would have some familiarity of this deck prior to the Pro Tour for sure. Although you're not playing the standard seat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's certainly true. But I mean, I got like spell slinging to do, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you got to win those spell slinging games. You can't afford to drop those. Yeah, I, I can't give away those packs. Yeah, th- like this deck has been popping up enough now that I think that what you said is just absolutely correct, where you need to kind of have it in the rotation. You need to know what's going on. Like this cannot be a deck where you sit down, you play a game and then like you go to sideboarding. You're like, I don't have a plan for this. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing like that. That is just a huge disservice to yourself. Agreed. And one of the things that's impressed me a lot about Ray's deck, not to you know dwell on this for too long, but Karns out of the sideboard, just like very efficient plan of here's my turn for Planeswalker. And oh, by the way, it's chaining a 6-6, six, six, then a 7-7, seven, seven, and still leaving a Planeswalker in play that you have to deal with, that's good against a bunch of decks, especially when they miss sideboard against you. Oh, yeah. I myself, I, w- I was playing on the blue-black splash bolus side of the matchup, and I boarded out all of my Vraska's Contempts for game two, and I lost to a Karn almost immediately. So, I mean, I deserved it for not knowing the list well enough, um, but it's it's another neat wrinkle that they can bring into post-board games that I, I really start... I like the varied plans this deck is starting to bring together it seems like it's starting to get things figured out yeah and, and oh yeah you're just also threatening like an insano combo this entire time so right exactly the deck finally got enough pieces i think i don't know if this is going to be like the the next like best deck to beat or whatever like i don't know if this thing is ever going to like terrorize the format or not but the pieces are there i think right that's kind of where i fall on it, is i don't see it rising to the top but there will be a team that puts in some time to figuring out the optimal list of this deck and will probably be rewarded for it at the pro tour. That's my guess. Yep. How I'm basically approaching it right now is I think the red and black cards are both very good. I'm not sure exactly what happened to make chain whirler not necessarily disappear, but like you look at these, the top eights, right? And it's like, there's a lot of stompy decks. There's some constrictor. There's like the blue green Karn deck. And it's like, what the hell? Like, where, where did all this stuff come from? Why are people not playing chain whirler? And then you see that it's just like littered throughout the top 16 and top 32. 
Right. So you now you have to ask why wasn't it able to convert? And some of it you could always write off to variance. That's always going yeah. to be part of the equation. But there might be something more than that going on here. Yeah. I mean, now red, black, uh, or mono red might just be decks in the format as opposed to the thing that is like running roughshod over the entire format. So I don't know. I, I do think that red, black is still good. Uh, I, I also think it's kind of weird that like red, black is like the most tuned deck, right? So for it to be the most tuned and most efficient and also fall a little short might be indicative. Right. I will say that I've played things a bit on the blue, black splash bolus side and the matchup feels different than it did you know, just going back prior to the arrival of Bolas. It feels like a whole different game. You have this long plan, which is very scary for the red-black decks to deal with. It feels like your answers are lining up better. And I can't tell you why exactly, because the answers are the same. Maybe it's just the fact they're playing a card down, like you playing Bolas and having a blocker for their Chain Whirler and then being minus a card is making enough of a ripple effect throughout the later turns of the game to really pull the blue-black decks into the lead in this matchup. But the matchup feels pretty good from the blue-black side now. I'd be very comfortable playing that. And and also the mono-red matchup is starting to feel very good from the blue-black side as well for the exact same reason I'm talking about, just them being a card down. I think mono-red is very incentivized to go to Flame of Keld at this point based yes. on some of this stuff. That would be the correct build of mono-red in my eyes. But not seeing a ton of it. I actually don't know if it was present at all in this PTQ, if I remember correctly. So so interesting evolutions of mono red going on at the same time as all these other decks are kind of struggling to find their form. Yeah, Viashino Pyromancer is quite good. Although Agreed. if if that becomes popular, then I definitely like a fungal infection or two out of the black deck sideboard. Yeah, that's a nice little sideboard card. Picking off two of their creatures uh with one card is gonna yield dividends and just it further feeds into this uh this game plan of getting these little bits of ancillary value and you know dropping a bolus and costing them a card and costing them two cards with your one mana removal spell and all this is going to add up to get you to the late late game at a much healthier life total than you previously were yeah other than that uh i have really liked two yeheni's expertise and like a third doomfall in the sideboard that that mostly cleans up mono red and the flame of Keldex, i think but if mm-hmm. you were specifically worried about Flame of Kel, I do think you need like a couple essence extractions on top of that. Like you need a, an, another little bit of supplemental life gain. You're, are you talking from the perspective of the blue black deck or are you talking about black yes. red right now? From uh, blue, blue black. black. Blue black. Okay. Black blue. Black blue. Black blue. Right. Right. That's a fair way of stating it. So yeah, I, I think the those those are the plans I've liked the most. And then depending on what everyone's lists look like, you can include things like fungal infection. But for the most part, like you just try and build your main deck in such a way where you don't have to sideboard a lot anyway. Like you're mostly just cutting siphoners and then making some uh, like curve upgrades along the way a little bit. Right, right. A very minor, minor adjustments in the postboard games. Yep. Yeah. So have have your main deck tailored a little bit to fight these red decks. I think that that is necessary. And I think the the sacrifice that comes with that is like you get a little bit worse against control, but like I don't see any control decks. Well, I'm going to I'm going to have to stop you there and I'm going to have to move you over to the Star City top 8 now. And with the caveat that this is a team event. So yep. we we don't know how much the standard decks carry the day. Although I have spoken with the players or at least one of the players of the control decks in the top 8 of uh the Star City team open and they had very very favorable things to say about the blue-white control archetype on the whole. And I I spoke with uh, Jonathan Rossum. He said the deck was fantastic. And I kind of want to go back to square one and and paint a picture of the format. Because here's how I have seen things evolve very rapidly over the last six or so days. I I think there was like this baseline of people being very interested in in blue-black, in maybe blue-black God Pharaoh's Gift, a deck which a lot of people were picking up for sure. And then I think Friday came along and Andrew Jessup kind of unlocked things for everyone yes, by talking about his green deck and particularly his tech of Vine Mare, which fundamentally changes these matchups for these decks. What did you think about the inclusion of Vine Mare into the green-black archetype or mono-green as it's called in some instances? Yeah, Vine Mare is great. Yeah. If there's a way to get a few copies into the main deck without just completely demolishing the mana curve, I would definitely be all about that because of how good it is against 
uh, red, black, and black, blue. Although uh, chain whirler blocking it is obviously an issue, so you need you know some way to get around that, right? But for for the most part, just like having a big hexproof threat is insane. Yeah, and not only did Jessup clue everyone into the inclusion of Vinemare in this deck, he then top aided this team open with Vinemare in his deck. Uh, as well, four copies in the sideboard. So kind of the first step I saw the format take was the inclusion of Vine Mare in the green decks. And that allowed these decks to power through previously problematic matchups. But what happened then is the really on it players, players such as Jonathan Rossum, players such as the PTQ winner Goburn, threw a bunch of Essence Scatters into their blue base decks. They went three main deck copies of Essence Scatters. And I've been surprised from the blue-black deck's perspective how much play you actually have against Vinemare. You are completely prepared to deal with them with this main deck configuration that Goburn presented here with the three Essence Scatters. You're able to implement your plan in such a way that you don't really leave yourself vulnerable on a bunch of turns. And then there's things like just bringing back their reanimation targets and using them to block Vine Mare in perpetuity. All, all of these plans are completely feasible and give you outs to Vine Mare. And I think this deck was actually, I don't know if purposefully or incidentally, very well built to deal with the threat of Vine Mare in the format. I think Scatter is just good. It's obviously really good against the green decks. It's good against the red decks because they have all these four mana haymakers, including the Bullis decks. Good against Scarab God. Most of the control decks are Torrential Gear Hulk. Like, Essence Scatter is just good. It's good against almost everyone. Right. And and I think that's why it was such a great call for this, this format. You're able to use it very effectively against almost all the decks except one. And that's the deck which I think takes even the next step. If, if I knew that everyone was getting on board these base black decks with a little bit of blue and had access to all these Essence Scatters, I'm inclined to look at Creatureless decks. Surprise, surprise. And what is the creatureless deck that has been around the format for the longest at this point and has the results to back it up? It is blue-white control. And Jonathan Rossum had very favorable things to say. When the weekend was coming, I was telling people over in the Game Podcast Discord, I thought blue-white control was the correct call for this week. Really nothing new going on here. No new flashy cards, just blue-white control as it existed previously. But one thing that did change was the addition of three essence scatters. So also recognizing how good this card is in the format, how many problems it cleans up, and seemingly finding a lot of success. The list played by Dylan Donegan and Jonathan Rossum into the top eight of the SCG team event were, I think, identical. I think card for card identical and placed them both into the top eight. Yeah, Rossum said he went 10 and 1 against Red Decks. Right. I don't find that surprising, especially as these Red Decks have to, you know, kind of answer these other problems that are going on in the format. They're less focused on blue-white, and I think everyone was less focused on blue-white. But if you just think about how the spells line up, how good having two Fumigates against these green decks is, still having access to settle the wreckage, pull from tomorrow to win these card advantage wars, these attrition wars, it all makes sense. It all becomes very clear why it makes sense to pick up blue-white control again. Yeah, I get that. I, I think for the most part, like people need to not skimp on answers or plans to decks like control where oh it's like not super prevalent now like oh i just have to focus on like beating all these creature decks and it's like well yeah obviously like a control deck with fumigate is gonna be like what people to play to try beat the creature decks right so like at some point you you have to just be like well i'm not gonna cut all my duresses or i'm not gonna play 13 removal spells main or whatever but like we continually see people do that like there there's no hedging going on it's like making a bunch of hard reads in order to try and spike a specific week, which I don't think is necessarily correct. Right. It's Well, it's an interesting conundrum. Uh, I, I would argue that that's kind of the approach that has found the most success recently, at least in terms of the SCG tour. I think I'm very comfortable making that assertion. In terms of the Moto metagame, maybe you're seeing more success with a little bit of hedging, a little bit more you know, diversity in the sideboard, a little bit wider planning. Uh, but it does seem like the people playing the SCG tour are making these very focused calls and, and finding success with them. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether this is a week for a little bit broader plan or a week for specific calls. But w- you and I have talked a bunch about how much we hate these Grixis all removal decks. Like yes. I have very little interest in the Grixis 16 removal spell deck. I think it's just unplayable, horrible nonsense. And I like how the blue black splash bolus deck has tempered away 
a little bit from that, but I still think they can go further and and do a little bit more to find some more diverse threats in post-board games. I think Doomfall is kind of the biggest card where it's it's good against red, it's good against green, it's good in mirrors, and it's good against control. And it's not a card that I would necessarily recommend you play four of or anything, but it is sort of that bridge that allows you to play a removal spell while also having a card for control. Mm. So I think your opinion on this card has changed over time. Is is that fair to say? Because I, I think I remember you not being high on Doomfall for a while. I hated Doomfall because it's just like inefficient and bad at both things. Right. But when the format is all about the four mana creatures, then Doomfall is suddenly reasonable, right? Because you would play like, you know, three mana Utter End or whatever. And right. Doomfall, Doomfall is effectively that. But like when everyone was playing like, you know, one drop, like Toolcraft Exemplar and Heart of Kieran and stuff, it's just like this card is not playable and people kept playing with it. Very true. Definitely two different formats we're looking at into the Mardu metagame. It, it does seem a little silly, but we're well past that at this point. Things look very mid-rangey right now. But when things do get mid-rangey like this, and when we're talking about adding Doomfall so you're able to prepare for these things, that's when aggro rears its head again and finds a way to make itself a player in the format. It's not right now. I'd say aggro is kind of at a low point as far as things go, unless you're considering the green decks aggro. I, I don't. I see them as something else. I don't really know how to define them. But for whatever reason, in my head, they don't register as an aggro deck. They register as like a board presence, big dumb creature deck. Yeah, um, so the, the green decks don't really get into racing situations very often. They mostly just beat like, or they create like an unbeatable battlefield presence, right? Correct. They just play a bunch of things that you just can't deal with and eventually you lose. Yeah, I think that's a good summation of how they approach the game and why I view them differently as, you know, red-black aggro sporting the full set of Bomat couriers. It'll be interesting to see if that's what is able to get a foothold as we go forward. If the Bomat courier makes a return and you know, gets one last shot at the format before it sails off into the sunset. You know, what's interesting to me is that there are these green stompy decks. There are red decks with Bomat Courier. And then as kind of a response to this, there are these Grixis decks that play 13 removal spells or whatever. And then there are the red black aggro decks still chugging along that for the most part are like Pantheon's red black aggro deck with like very, very few removal spells. I, I think it is time to just realize that you can actually like change how your deck is built, right? Like just because Owen plays the same 75 in every tournament just to like be funny doesn't mean that it's right or that's what you should be doing. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, our podcast is focused on week-to-week evolutions and on making optimal decisions. And, you know, there wouldn't be much purpose for us coming here every week and talking about these small little edges you could find if we didn't believe that there was always optimizations to be made and always changes to be made. So you're you're saying you're sick of the state of red black aggro. You want to see some innovation. Well, I'm sick of people just copy pasting the same deck, right? Like, for example, there are weeks where God Pharaoh's gift is great or awful, right? And I think for the pro tour, they re- they recognize that there weren't going to be a lot of artifacts worth killing. That's why they're like, oh, I want two lightning strike, two upgrade. And I still mm. see that split, even though there's a lot of God Pharaoh decks doing well, right? Like. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think people have a fear of touching like the pros deck, right? When people just pick up a deck and they're trying to figure out what to play and they're taking Owen's advice from an article or your advice from an article, they're they're not willing a lot of time to make those week-to-week changes. They're just like, oh, this was correct. But every decision made is always made in the vacuum of that one-week tournament. Like, I've seen people rag on things we've said in the past where we declare something unplayable maybe. And then the next week we're (laughs) exulting the virtues of that card. When we're making a determination like that, we're talking about in the moment right now for that weekend tournament. That's all we're saying. It it says nothing about the, the broader state of the card or its overall power level. It's what you should be playing right now at this moment. And as you can see from the way our perspective routinely changes, I mean, there's only a few weeks ago where I was telling everyone you should not be playing blue-white under any circumstances. And now I'm saying I think it's very well positioned and it's time to pick it back up again. Things right. change week to week and you have to be able to adapt. And the most important thing is you have a reason behind your adaptation and something you're looking to accomplish. And you know, you're spot on. There's a problem with God Pharaoh's gift early on in this format. I saw blue black God Pharaoh's gift on moto everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. Therefore decks had to adapt to it. And in the same way, I saw a lot of blue black God Pharaoh's gift decks not picking up angel invention. 
And that seemed like a mistake to me as well. It seemed like they were they were trying to participate in a format that didn't actually exist. And they had to kind of bow down to Angel when mentioned. And then when Vine Mare rose to prominence, it further exasperated that problem. We really needed to have yeah. some some token chump blockers that you could call on. Uh, and Angel when mentioned became that much better. Or you could just race the Vine Mare, make a large Angel, and then race the Vine Mare. But regardless, it became very clear that Angel was a necessity for these blue black god pharaohs gift to find success. Yeah, I, w- I was playing some with VTCLA's deck. I don't know. I, pl- I played against the mono green deck and it was just, it felt like a nightmare and I didn't really know why. It was like, obviously, like I wanted to like max Ravenous Chupacabra and everything, but for the most part, it was just like they would blow up my important stuff and then my creatures would just not matter because they would have like Steel Leaf Champions and Vine Mares and stuff like that. It was just like kind of a joke. I just like needed so much help. They have a surprising amount of resilience and disruption at this point, like thrashing Brontodon is a very important card for that archetype and their ability to still establish board presence while keeping you in check is something that a lot of decks can't match. It's not many decks that get to play a three power creature as well as a future removal spell for your God Pharaoh's gift. And that's problematic. Obviously, like you said, you have your Chupacabras, you have answers, but there's just a lot of cards you have to answer. And then post board where you're looking at things like say Nissa or a lot of these decks are playing uh, Vivian now. Yeah. All of these things can answer problematic permanence over and over and over. Yeah. Vivian into thrashing Brontodon was just like, how the hell am I supposed to win? Right. Almost unbeatable. And I actually ran into the same problem with the Nexus of Fate deck that I was playing a bunch where like they just totally controlled my Mirari's conjectures. I was unable to keep an enchantment on the board to get anything done. And, you know, that's kind of a fringe application, but you see it play out over more meta matchups. They have a very clear path to controlling your ability to establish your God Pharaoh's Gift combo. Yeah, I I think God Pharaoh's Gift has gotten a lot of good cards I just, I don't, it seems so difficult to actually just make your plan A consistent and work a lot, especially if, you know, all these Grixis decks have a bunch of abrades, and if Red Black actually does the smart thing and plays multiple abrades when they should be in weeks like this, and the green decks are just playing, like, Max Brontodon and Vivians and whatnot, like, why is Godfaro's Gift your plan A? Well, look... I'm super high on Stitcher Supplier. I've been very clear about that. And I I am a believer in Blue Black God Pharaoh's Gift in terms of it being an optimal version of the God Pharaoh's Gift combo. However, when we have seen God Pharaoh's Gift decks succeed, they've almost always had these bifurcated plans. The version of God Pharaoh's Gift, which has had the most success, is Blue White. And they play this weird kind of fumigate control deck role where they have access to search to Azkanta and they can play a very, very long game and are comfortable, you know, not even having access to their God Pharaoh's Gifts. That's the version of the deck which has found success. And maybe that speaks a little bit to the vulnerability of setting up these kind of, uh, you know, seven mana artifacts in a format filled with thrashing Brontodons and Abrades and things like that. Weird. Weird how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a couple weird things that are popping up here and there are mono black ish zombie decks and these yep. Sarkins unsealing decks. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on, uh, I guess both those, you can start wherever you'd like. I haven't actually played games with Sarkins unsealing. That's kind of on my list of things to do, but uh, like I said, been kind of busy in Japan and whatnot. So I do feel like this is a build that could have a lot of advantages in mirror-ish type matches, but again, you run into the same problem as like the thrashing Brontodons and whatnot. But unsealing is pretty similar to Gift, where like if you have it in play for a turn, you're probably going to win the game. Right. But at least Gift gives you something like the turn immediately when you stick it, you know? Yeah, so my instinct as someone who has like built a bunch of constructed decks and you know had success in constructed formats is to write off that deck immediately basically for the reason you're saying i do not have much interest in playing a five mana enchantment that does absolutely nothing especially in a format which has some i mean that effect if you think about it you would expect to be best against green creature decks right like you play a bunch of dumb creatures i'm going to wrath you over and over there's nothing you can do about it however there's the brontodon liability and the fact that they're very uniquely prepared to deal with your five mana do nothing enchantment. It's four mana. That makes me, oh, excuse me, four mana, my mistake. That really makes me not want to go all in on this strategy. You're asking for too much to go right. And then when you start thinking about 
when you're being disrupted. We talked about Doomfall being a, a widely played card. And as you're having your hand attack with Bolus and you have fewer and fewer resources, you know, it takes a lot of lands to be able to play these large creatures. So I don't think this deck is equipped to play a resource pinched game. And I think it has some vulnerabilities beyond that. So I have not been a buyer of this strategy thus far. But like you, I haven't played games with it. So it's totally possible I'm, I'm just missing something. And there's more to this this archetype than meets the eye. I, I think that unsealing could be a potent threat against control. But okay, when, when you look at how the decks are built now with like Scrap Heap Scroungers and they have the sideboard Hour of Glories and Doomfalls, it's, most of that stuff strikes me as things that they need in order to be successful. Whereas before we saw some uh, version splashing blue for negate or spell pierce and then eventually it was just like two copies of commit memory main deck and mm-hmm. one of the issues there is that you give up scrap heap for resilient kenra which is not ideal and then your sideboard options are just much weaker as a whole but like if you could go back to something like that and also still splash unsealing like maybe that is a reasonable plan for jund because you don't have the disruption with the counter spells that the blue version does all right but then, you know, your your mana base is just awful. Like, Sheltered Thicket is not the land that you want in these sorts of decks. So No, certainly not. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, it, realistically, what you should probably do is just, like, try and play a few more copies of Duress, especially if the control decks that are going to come back are the ones with Settler Wreckage and, like, no-win conditions, or even if they have Torrential Gear Hulk, whatever. Like, you, you mainly just want to pinch them on the one Settle turn. And right. I, I think that should be fine. Okay. Interesting approach. I, I haven't played the matchup from either side. It, it's not a deck I've even run into much in the queues, although you see it finding some scattered success, not really making inroads as far as these kind of premier events go, but definitely showing up in the 5-0 list over and over. Yeah, I think the first 5-0 happened before Worcester, right? right? So it was probably both a little too late for people to pick it up and also just are they, you know, they're like, oh, is this even real, right? And now that sure. it's winning more and more, and it's like you see like the Traxxas getting cut from the list and people are refining them a little bit. It's like, I'm sure it's something that's going to pop up a little bit more often from here on out. Okay. And what about zombies? You mentioned zombies as well. What's your take on where that deck lies as it stands? Uh, Lord of the Accursed is not very good. So is there a way around playing things like Lord of the Accursed? Is there a viable deck here? You see it show up in 5-0s repeatedly. I, I don't know that we've gotten to the point of losing Lord of the Accursed yet. I haven't seen any decks specifically that have made that step. I think it is uh, Scrap Heap Scrounger, Graveyard Marshal, Dreadshade, Heart of Kieran, and just forego the zombie synergy stuff because the zombie right. synergy stuff realistically is just pretty weak. Yeah, that's where we kind of fell on our initial talk through this archetype is you were not a buyer and jamming a bunch of lords together and seeing what comes out on the other side. Uh, I have seen this Dreadshade deck that you're speaking of. Definitely more powerful individual cards contained in that deck and something I'm starting to get a little bit more interested in than just trying to hope my zombies mush together to form something uh, viable in the format. Death Baron is tight, but everything else surrounding Death Baron is not very good. In a world of giant green creatures, I get why Death Baron is the card we're looking for. Death Touch, a sneakily powerful ability, I would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if Gifted Aetherborn could block Steel Leaf Champion, I'd be all about it. Mm-hmm. But instead, what, what are you going to do? So what about, what about this artifact deck, this paradoxical outcome? So, as I mentioned, it's more resilient than you believe at first glance. It seems like a deck that you would expect just fold to duress and negate post-board plans out of the blue-black decks. I don't think that's true. Uh, The fact that you can protect key pieces with Paradoxical Outcome at special times means you're able to play a different game. And this this is the thinking man's combo deck. You can really play your opponent into some corners if you're able to glean some familiarity with this archetype and and figure out exactly what kind of clocks you you can present, how you can get your opponent dealing with your threats on the wrong axis, how you can get them focused on the wrong things. All of these things are very subtle and nuanced plays where I think this is a deck that might reward some practice. I think putting in uh, some some hours with this deck really might pay dividends for people who are interested in having something a little bit off the beaten path for this standard season. And especially in the hands of very talented players, I'm convinced there's definitely some innovation you can do here. I like a lot of pieces, 
present in Ray Perez's deck, the seventh place list from the Moto PTQ. But I, I do think there's some sideboard cards that I'm not crazy about. Something like Silent Gravestone, I feel like it's just there because it's an artifact. Um, there's a lot of things you don't care all that much about that it's preventing. So just let them go and find other uses. I, I'm not sure what Baral is supposed to do. Maybe that's like the anti-control card. I kind of like just leaning on Psy in the control matchups, though. That seems better to me than doing something like Baral. So I would love to talk with Ray about what he's doing here with his sideboard plans. But regardless, I'm convinced that there is a real deck here that merits some exploration for sure. And it's sweet to play with Scrylance again, especially untapped ones. <laughs> the fact that this deck can actually play Zalfarin Void, I'm into that. I, I like getting to Scry again from my mana base. Yeah, it is really cool how, like, there, there are just a lot of sweet utility lands in this standard format. It's like they, they all just come with such a significant cost. So whenever you find a way to, like, slide some of them in your deck, you you just feel so rewarded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this is one of those, as well as Inventor's Fair, which is present in this list. And definitely you could see being a very important point, part of this archetype in some instances. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a threat against control, and it buys you time against red. Uh, I mean, right. you, you have to play four Ornithopters in your deck, but whatever, I guess. Uh, you, you know, you win some, you lose some. You're never really thrilled about having those Ornithopters there. I guess could block Bomat Courier, right? That's half sort of good. If there's a matchup I would be particularly worried about, it's Mono Red, for sure. It doesn't exist right now, though, at least as it stands in this PTQ. So this seems like a great call uh, for a metagame where you're not worried about Mono Red whatsoever. Yeah, everyone's playing slow green decks with no disruption. Hell yeah. Yep. Let's go. Yep, time for combo. And it's just it's just good to have some combo in the format again. Uh, and not of the degenerate, like, here's my three drop, here's my four drop, I win. Something that requires a little bit more thought than that. Yeah, I mean, God Pharaoh's Gift was kind of taking up that mantle for a little bit, but that's like creature combo. It doesn't. It never really feels the same, right? No, it doesn't feel the same. It's more like I, I cheat my way to board presence more than I cheat my way to like a combo kill. And this actually feels like a combo kill. Right. Uh, well, uh, what about Grixis Dragons, I guess? Like, have you played against this much at all? I played with it a bit. Sarkin's a real card, and, and I'm a little surprised it's not getting the kind of penetration I thought it would. Like, this was, this was where I started the format. I, I was a believer in Grixis Dragons. I think Sarkin is very, very good as far as what's going on that's keeping the card down. I don't want to make it as simple as just, like, the blue-black lists are better. But that's kind of how I feel right now. It seems like they're doing more powerful stuff. Um, and maybe the format has to be about something different for Sarkin to shine. I mean, if we approach a meta that's defined by blue-white, if I'm correct, and blue-white is the right deck to pick up right now, I could see Sarkin then being absolutely the correct inclusion in these style of decks. Uh, getting a onboard presence from your Planeswalker very early in the game is going to yield dividends for sure. Yeah. I, I mostly agree with that. I do think that Black Blue is likely stronger, mostly because you get to play things like Fatal Push and Cast Down, which are a little bit better right now than Magma Spray and a Braid. At least mm-hmm. if you're not focusing on the, you know, have to be able to kill an artifact instance of things, right? Right. And you're not super concerned about the Stitcher suppliers and Champion of Wits of the world. Right. And Essence Scatter is completely absurd. But the the one thing I think is like, well, people are playing these old red black decks, and if if you look at like the the card breakdowns for things, it's just like there are so many Llanowar elves and not mm. not a ton of chain whirlers. So there there has to be like a chain whirler deck that is good, right? Like things things could completely shift back. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to believe that this is a solved format. I would expect things to be very cyclical, and I expect Chain Whirler to be a big part of that cycle. Uh, like you said, it's littering the top 16 decks. And as we always talk about, if things just break a little differently in that last round, then we're telling the same narrative we were telling before. With the format's dominated by Chain Whirler, here's four Chain Whirler decks in the top eight. We would point at the Star City event, again, a team event, but there are three red-black aggro decks out of the top four teams contained there. And I think we're pushing that down a little bit just because of it being a team event and the Moto PTQ not matching that story. But in that instance, there's Chain Whirler all over the place. I, I don't believe that Chain Whirler is gone from the format. I think it continues to be a very reasonable approach. It just remains to be seen whether it's in the kind of Sarkin shells or more traditional red-black shells. I guess I was looking at the the last uh, league, and the the PTQ mm-hmm. Chain Whirler is the second most popular creature overall. Okay, so it really it's right. not that bad. But 
one of the problems with Sarkin 2 is just the prevalence of Scrap Heap Scrounger, I think. Like, if, if the format were maybe not slower necessarily, but, like, the green decks are just, like, so punishing and the creatures are so big that they can often just kill Sarkin in one attack, right? Whereas right. if the creatures were smaller and you got to, like, play Sarkin, tick it up, have it live, and you get to untap with it and then double spell, I think that that's kind of, like, smooth sailing from there, right? But it's, like... You play Sarkin, they play Steel Leaf Champion or whatever. Like, your Sarkin's just going to die. Yep, it's gone. And there aren't a lot of very efficient ways to to get past that breakpoint. So, yeah, it could just be a question of body size. But, you know, again, cycles and bodies will shrink and grow. And there will be times where you don't want to be playing creatures because there are essence scatters everywhere. And that's going to push Sarkin back into the fold. It's just too powerful of a three-mana Planeswalker not to eventually see some play. Yeah, I mean, even at, like, at the very least, these red-black decks could look into sideboarding some copies of Sarkin just to have like filtering and a threat post-board against mm-hmm. control matchups. And if you're going to be boarding in Glorybringer anyway, like Sarkin is a right. fine place to turn when you're playing Chain Whirler and therefore not playing a lot of black mana. You can't play Argul's Bloodfast, etc. Like, you want some sort of effect from this. Totally buy that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well... If I were playing a tournament, I think I would be a fish and just play black blue mid range with Nicol Bolas. I would make sure to have a reasonable amount of cast downs main deck, probably two, and just make sure that you have enough ways to cleanly answer a Steel Leaf champion. Okay. I don't think you're being super fishy by making that uh, decision. I, I think this deck is very powerful. Um, I was impressed with how many situations it can play itself out of. Despite all of that, I want to make a non-fish move. I will be playing blue-white control if I have to play an event this weekend. I think it's half a week ahead of the metagame. I like dodging all the essence scatters that are floating around out there. Uh, I'd be sure I have a good plan for the sideboard because I would anticipate some people picking this deck up. Uh, We see Torrential Gear Hulk kind of feeling that role right now. I'm not interested. I want Baral back over Torrential Gear Hulk really just don't like that card in the meta as it stands. Uh, I also would want a 27th land. I see a lot of decks going to 26. That seems crazy to me. You can never, ever miss a land drop. Uh, basically, for the first six turns, you're you're in a bad state if you miss a land drop. So 26 land seems very greedy to me. Could just be my risk-averse nature, though, and not wanting to gamble on that. I feel like I can play out of Flood much more efficiently in this deck than I can yes. play out of Screw. So I just don't get the the point of taking the risk of 26 lands like lose the supreme will from jonathan rossum's deck and add a 27th land and he's basically exactly where i want to be his deck was super light on card drawing though right he's got two pulls okay two pulls for teferi which and search as well so that feels super light i get what you're saying but having played this archetype a lot it gets you to what you need uh, it only takes the one pull, you know, the pull for three, the pull for four. Usually that's enough when you're able to then set up a Teferi and protect the Teferi and ride that to victory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want... I know. I know you're not a buyer in the archetype. I, I know. No, I mean, the, the deck itself is fine. It, like, obviously performs very well, but I don't know. I feel like you just need a little bit more of, like, the mid-game velocity type stuff. You're a glimmer of genius guy. No, actually, I hate glimmer, but... I mean, you need you need something along those lines. So a hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic illumination, a card you consider as well. Yeah. I just haven't been thrilled with those cards. Maybe the one of illumination I can get on board with, but there's not a lot I want to cut here. I think this is a pretty tight package. I like a lot of what's going on. You have the kick mode of blink of an eye too. I know you're not going to be thrilled with that, no, but blink was it the is card. worth something. Blink was the card I was going to say that you should cut. Uh, I would have to think about that a bit more. There was a point where it felt indispensable as far as where it lies now i guess it depends i guess it depends which of these metagames you're facing if you're facing the the big green dummies at sorcery speed i'm kind of into blink of an eye um you get a little bit more strategic planning and it's kind of a key card there it's important against the god pharaoh's gift decks so hard to say it really depends on what your expected metagame is Rossum did get smashed by god pharaoh's gift so there's that but okay his opponent also like mauled to five and then turn three'd him Yikes, that, that's that's aggressive. Yeah, it was just literal nut draw, minister uh, into search, into refurbish. Wow, well, that's serious. And then he refurbished again on the next turn. That was great. Uh, well, you know, sometimes that happens. <laughs> Not for me, but it, it happens to some people. That's what I hear anyway. Yeah. Anything spicy for the sideboard or do you like what Rossum's doing? 
Uh, for a while, I was considering the, I don't even know the name of the card. The card that we basically pooped on all last week, 2-1 Spirit, that you can get rid of graveyards by removing it. What's Why? it called? Because I thought it was a nice, clean answer to God Pharaoh's gift and also did the role of presenting a clock in some matchups. 2-1 Flyer was difficult for some decks to deal with when they have no removal post-board, just pressuring Planeswalkers. You know, if you saw something like a Sarkin, you had at least some way of interacting with it other than just letting it tick up into infinity. But I like going back to Brawl right now. I, I like the Ballistas. I like going to Brawl and having a plan for the mirror matchups where Brawl is absolutely insane. I don't know. I don't think there's any world where you could board in the 2-1 Spirit against the Sarkin deck because you know they're going to have Chain Whirler and keep it in against you. Uh, I guess that's true. So it might be a little bit too narrow in that role, only really targeting the God Pharaoh's Gift decks. It's not good enough at that job for me to want it in that instance, I guess. Yeah. I, w- I would just have like Max Forsakes or whatever. Okay. You know, like play as many of those cards as you need to before you're just like, all right, this this matchup's probably fine. Now I'm on this spirit. No, I get what you're saying. That makes sense. Well, kind of a shorter episode, but I think that we did a pretty good job of just like covering everything. Yeah, I think so. Maybe our excitement drove us through the archetypes a little quickly this week. I think this is a really fun standard uh, with a lot of room left for exploration. You know, we could get into some of the goofier decks floating around. There's like, the have you seen the Power Stone Shard combo deck? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's that's out there. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole, I'm sure there's even more insane things. There's Nexus of Fate decks. If you can afford the Mamoto, if you happen to be rich, then you can go pick up <laughs> Nexus of Fate and try that out. But th- there's all kinds of stuff floating just below the edges of the format. It's going to be hard for it to kind of weasel its way in, given how powerful just the baseline of this format is. Really, really powerful cards being cast right now. So these, these rogue strategies are going to have a hard time making their way in, but... You never know when one of those decks can seize the moment and and get a nice result. This is like the third largest standard format of all time, right? Something like that? Something like that. I, I think I saw AJ tweeting about numbers of cards and formats, and this is like just behind Time Spiral Block and maybe one other standard format. But it's a big one for sure. Yeah, it's, it's enormous. So it's not surprising that among all of these cards, there are a lot of good synergies and a lot of powerful cards and everything. And then, I don't know, is it is it kind of embarrassing that one of the largest standard formats of all time like the the best deck is like mono green aggro it's weird i don't think that's what anyone would expect like it's kind of great yeah i don't know i i think that has a lot to do with like hex proof being a really stupid mechanic and it always giving these decks like an out where they shouldn't have that out you know they're supposed to be vulnerable to the removal decks and then you print a silly hexproof card, but that's kind of beside the point. And I don't think the format's going to end with mono green on top. I think I think it's fine. I think it's a totally defensible choice. If you like that archetype, you're probably not wrong in playing it. Certainly in the top tier of decks, but I don't think it's going to end the standard format as the default best deck. No, I agree too. I mean, like if at any point you wanted to beat that deck, like hey man, there's always thirteen removal spell Grixis or whatever, right? Right, right. Or just fumigates. More fumigates is is always the way to go against green decks. Yeah, absolutely. Until they play their commits or duresses or whatever, you know, it's all cyclical. Mm-hmm. All right, hit me with a question. Okay, so here's a cool question from our Discord from one of our Patreons. This is from Clouded Page. And Clouded Page goes on to say, at your recommendation, I've gone and listened to Cedric's podcast with Jerry on the Silver Showcase. And with the constant repetition that Platinum Pros earn only 12K per year for their appearances, for being Platinum, essentially, it got me wondering, why magic? And I think that's a really interesting question, given all the talk that's been going on. The fact that some very well-known Magic players have seen some very incredible success over the past few weeks in the poker realm, making literal millions of dollars in many occasions, be it Ben Yu or Justin Bonomo, you know, not a magic grinder per se, but I know he plays magic and has been around the magic scene from time to time. Efro going super deep in the World Series, all these people making millions of dollars, and we're here fighting for our $150,000 tournament. So, Jerry, I think this question is directed more at you. Why magic? Uh, The short answer is the people are dope and it's the best game. And I never looked at magic as a thing that I like deserve to get money from. 
It was just like, all right, this is the thing that I want to do. And you kind of have to hustle. You kind of have to grind. You have to figure out ways that you can make money if the thing that you want to be interested in is magic, right? Like I could just go work a nine to five and also try and play magic, but it's like, no, magic is like the the game, the culture, the people that I want to be around basically all the time. I want to immerse myself in this and there are ways to make money in this arena. And it, at no point am I just going to be like, wizards should pay me more money because I'm a good magic player. Like, right. It would be nice if they did. Yeah, right. Uh, and all, don't get me wrong, I'll take it. Right, like platinum was never really a thing that I thought that I would achieve. It's just like I, I am not counting on that money to survive. And I think that if you are kind of bending your lifestyle in a way where you do depend on that twelve or fifteen thousand, like whatever platinum ends up being to live to like pay your bills and everything like you're kind of doing it wrong yeah i think that's an excellent point and i'm going to field this question as well although it obviously comes to me very differently than it comes to you because i don't necessarily rely on magic for income and that to me says everything about why magic like when i get to remove income decisions from my choice of recreational slash quasi-professional activity, it's a no-brainer at that point. I mean, like you said, Magic's the best game, period. Magic has the best people, period. I've done the poker thing. And more than anything, the difference between Magic and poker to me is in the people. Whereas I love being at a Magic tournament and around Magic players, I didn't get a lot of that same vibe at the poker table. There's a lot of like bad intentions and nasty people. And, you know, maybe the game has changed in the years. It's, it's been years since I was involved, but it like in the era that I was playing for a living, it wasn't as civilized as the magic table. It could be a nasty place at time. And, and the poker arena was never a lot of fun to me. It was a place you would go to grind and to work. And it wasn't like the same camaraderie and the same kind of social experiences for me, not having to make a decision at all based in finance, just finding the best quasi-competitive outlet, it's magic a hundred times over. It's just the best game ever made. I say that all the time. For all the complaining we do, for all the you know being fed up with the format and saying, how could the silver showcase happen? It doesn't change the fact that magic is just the bomb. Like It's the best game I love playing games of magic. And beyond that, I love talking about magic and wasting my brain power trying to figure out the best deck. And what are we going to talk about on the show? Where am I at going into next week? All this stuff makes me really happy. And I'm really fulfilled by doing it. That's why the answer to this question is easy. It's just you take money out of the equation. I mean, if you're like you said, if you're making decisions about magic with a financial bent to them, you're probably doing it wrong because there's really... There's ways to make it work, but it's never the optimal choice. Well, I disagree that it's never the optimal choice because like clearly I've made it work. And it's like that has involved, you know, me pouring my heart and soul into this game and trying to figure out ways to do it. And that doesn't necessarily work for everyone, right? But like but, there but are- that's not the same as optimal from a financial perspective. Like had you poured your heart and soul into something from a financial perspective, you probably could have made a lot more. From a personal perspective, I 100% agree it can be optimal. I well, just meant from I, a financial standpoint. I, I could have made more money and then probably been dead by 30. And instead, I am right. very very alive at 34 and also very happy with where I am. Right. That's the key distinction. The the equity for my life going forward is I am probably going to make more money as a result of this, right? <laughs> okay, that's one way. Look, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I fair I enough. mean, you want to you want to talk existentialist stuff? Like, I will I will be able to bend and twist it to my will to <laughs> to make whatever I say make sense. But all of that said, you know, you talked about how we you know complain about magic and stuff like that. It's one of those things where it's like you know you're so disappointed because you expected better of them. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm just hurt or whatever, like that sort of thing. It's just like, we do expect better of them. Like we, like magic is so good and they do like wizards in general does so much stuff correctly. And then they just do these like somewhat equally boneheaded things. And it's just like, what, what happened there? Like, why did that happen? I don't understand. Like I expected better of you and all this stuff. And the whole pay the pro stuff is very much like, Hey, do, do y'all know that 
you could be utilizing these people who absolutely love your game and love your community and your brand and everything. You could just be leveraging them and instead you don't and then you don't pay them and then you you wonder why they went to go play Hearthstone or whatever. It's just like, well, maybe if you just kept Kibler on board for the last five years or whatever, like magic would be bigger, you know? And right. it probably it probably wouldn't have taken a lot. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I don't know that I want to get bogged down in that whole quagmire again. Did you happen to catch, I don't know if you watched any of the coverage of the the one drop, the tournament that Justin Bonomo just won, but there was a silver showcase chant at some at one point from the rail. I mean, that's absurd. Yeah, it really did happen. I guess it was started by Ben Yu is, is what I'm reading. But when he was doing particularly well, they were chanting silver showcase. So nice. maybe Wizards got it right. I don't, by making a huge controversy, they were able to instill themselves on ESPN where they haven't been in quite some time. But I, I don't know. It was just a very bizarre occurrence. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to become a real life meme, then I guess you did it. Yeah, probably not the best approach. It's it's an approach. It's not the way that I would have gone, but you know. Sure. How do you say how do you say that's game in Japanese? I don't even know. Uh, why are you asking? Why would I ever know the answer to this question? You were asking the wrong person. You're gonna have no, to figure that out and then come back next week. It's it's because I'm in Japan, man. I'm not. I don't know. I know why, but you're directing it at the wrong person. You should go yell out your hotel room and ask someone. Listen, I'm directing it at you because I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't help you here. I'm sorry. But it would be a very cool way to end the show. I agree. Well, it, it's it's 10 a.m. in Japan, and I'm going to sign us out. I don't know how to say that's game in Japanese, and I don't want to wake up my fellow hotel mates who are possibly sleeping very soundly. Okay, drop it. Drop it low-key on us. So I'm just going to say, that's game. <laughs>